Hi, I'm Derek McFadden, proud to be an author, a poet, and a lover of most things pop culture. I am also handicapped, born with a mild form of cerebral palsy. But please note, this podcast is not called Handicapped Writer. It is instead titled Writing While Handicapped, because that's what I do. Join me as we talk with folks in the book world. And this podcast looks at the world of literature from a perspective you haven't seen before. Welcome in to a new episode of Writing While Handicapped. I'm here with Adam Mitzner. His new book is Love, Betrayal, Murder. And I'm going to say that like somebody who is promoting a movie on a trailer, because that's really what it felt like to me. Love, betrayal, murder. It goes from love to betrayal to murder. So, uh, Adam, tell me how you came up with this idea. Well, first, thanks for having me on. Um, So... The idea had several different components. The first was that I wanted to write a book that was centered on the meaning of truth and how that can be a variable based on context. Mm -hmm. Second, I wanted to write a book about uh, an office romance. Um, And third, I wanted to, because this is a little bit of a departure for me in in my writing, I wanted to start off with a relationship that was really good, though not without its problems. But that's why, in my view, so the title, in some ways, many of my books, I come to the title very, very late. And sometimes the publisher changes it before it goes out. Right. This was one of those where I kind of had the title early on, but it was kind of like, you know, the story about when they titled Snakes on the Plane. Like, (laughs) I wanted about love betrayal and murder and yeah. and I had that as a working title for a long time and then i said no no that should be the title and that's how the book came to be so tell us about your two main characters who are matt and vanessa so you know they're people like i i should say i'm i'm a practicing lawyer i've yeah. worked in big firms and so they're a little bit sort of an amalgamation of all different kinds of people that I've met in my world, probably mainly me and both, both for Vanessa and Matt, I should say that. (laughs) So Matt to me is somebody who's very smart and the kind of guy who you could imagine being a big firm law partner, somebody who works hard, plays by the rules doesn't really have much time for relationships and is really devoted to his job. And I've met a ton of people like that. Mm-hmm. I think there might've been a t- I was like that. And it was kind of important to me, you know, it, it's a running joke because the character is named after one of my closest friends. Oh. And when I told him I was that, and he actually begged me to do that. I said, but I got to tell you, my conception of the character is he's not, George Clooney looking. He's kind of a little bit of a of a nebbishy guy. Um, yeah. And that's my perception of him. Vanessa is the other way in my mind. She's also very, very smart, but very beautiful. And in her case, I think it almost works, you know, the opposite of societal expectations occurs because she's somebody who's saying, yeah, everybody notices me. 
but I want them to notice me because I'm also the smartest person around. And I think Matt's kind of got more of a chip where he says, I'm really smart and women never give me the time of day. And yeah. in that um, sense, I think that they make a really good couple because I think Matt's saying, I can't believe anybody who looked like Vanessa would ever want to be with me. And Vanessa's saying, I can't imagine that anybody's as smart as Matt treats me like an equal in the relationship. I know why Matt wants to be with her. She she is beautiful. It, uh, and that's, you know, and smart. Uh, but does does she want to be with Matt because in the rest of her life she feels trapped? It feels like, like that to me. That's how I read it. But I don't know if that's how you meant it. So I think both, right? Like, I think that Vanessa probably would be saying, I wished I had met Matt earlier. Yeah. But I think that she, deep down, like, I, part of it is, I believe that deep down, at least until things turn, they're both really in love. And yes. so, and and that requires, I think, Vanessa to say, I, I wish that I could be with Matt all the time. He's not, you know, uh, a break from my real life. He's not some sort of, you know, diversion. I want this to be my life all the time. So yeah, right. in that regard, I think that she's really in love with him. And it's just that her circumstances are such that it's difficult for her to conceive, you know, how can how can he be my my partner um yeah. without everything changing? Yeah, that it, it was really interesting the different twists you took with this. Did you know from conception the beginning the middle and the end or did you as you were writing did you change things up because i'm i wasn't sure as if there are some stories that come to us fully formed and there are some that you have to really work to get so i would say all of the above but more than many of my books i knew at least the first half right which is which is pretty good for me. You know, sometimes I only know the first scene from the beginning. Right. So I knew that they were going to be in this relationship. I knew that there was going to be a problem at work. I knew how the work issue was going to be resolved. And I knew about the murder. I I can't say, though, that I knew about how it was going to be resolved until later. How did you decide on the point of view changes and when to make them because those were really interesting and they were really informative for the reader, but in ways that I didn't expect when you're in the third person, I think, okay, you're going to always stay in the third person, but you don't, you will go to um, courtroom situations and cross-examining Vanessa and cross and examining Matt and cross-examining Vanessa or cross-examining Matt and examining Vanessa. And how did you decide on when to do that, when to make the switch and when to and when to reveal certain information to us? So I think that's one of the hardest things in the creative choice making and writing for me. It is. And the goal for me, this, one of the things that I, I like about the way this book turned out um, because it was my conception from the beginning. And I, and I can't say that I always feel like, yep, Nailed it. Right. But in this, I feel like I did in the sense that I wanted the reader to feel like a jury. And 
So I wanted them to get firsthand testimony and say, okay, how am I deciding this based on what I'm I'm seeing? And then I wanted them to get a peek behind it and say, well, how how close to, to what I'm seeing as a juror is really what happened. And, you know, and I think that, um, you know, there's a, among lawyers, there's, there's an old kind of folksy expression that you say to juries when you're trying to be folksy about, you know, just like pancakes, no matter how thin, they both got two sides, right? And I think legal cases are that way too. And the part that I thought was so interesting to me is, you know, both both in the book, but also in my real life, is that everybody always has a justification for what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So it's not enough to know what the what the truth is. But I think sometimes you have to know when someone's lying, why are they lying? And does that help you inform whether it's a good lie or a bad lie? And and so that was what I was trying to get out. And since both um, Vanessa and Matt, you know, think that they're doing the right thing and also know that they're lying. I, I think you have to see it from their point of view separately. So as a, as a lawyer, I mean, do you ever, I mean, do you ever just sit there, you're questioning a client, do you just ever sit there and go, I know this person is lying in your head but they have to for reasons. Like, I mean, I know you're not supposed to lie. It's obviously, you're supposed to tell the truth under under oath, but I guess this book shows that sometimes pe- people will lie. And, I, and that part to me blew my mind because when they say, you know, tell the truth under oath and you, you swear to do that, I just assumed everybody, de- but then you think about it, it's like, well, no, not everybody does. Like, Yeah, that- and it's one of, one of the funniest things because you know, lots of readers will comment about how they were so angry that somebody lied under oath. <laughs> and, and and to me, it's kind of like saying, it makes me so angry to hear that people, you know, don't pay the right amount of taxes. And it's like, right. I, I take that as almost a given. So, and one of the things that was interesting to me about this book is not only their perspectives, but the lawyer's perspectives, because as a lawyer, I take very seriously the idea that I will not suborn perjury. And so so I will never, ever in 100 years let someone who says to me, it happened like X, but I'm going to say Y, because mm. I, I can't do that. And, and I'm not going to let that happen. What happens much more often is they just tell me it happened like Y. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, there's no way it happened that way. Right. It just doesn't make sense. And as a lawyer in that situation, my, my belief is if I know it's a lie, everyone's going to know it's a lie. Right. And it's not really in their interest to tell that story. And so I think part of good lawyering is to say, you know, I hear you, but this document says it didn't happen that way. Let's let's think about how it actually happened. <laughs> that being said, have have I known people who lied under oath, who I represented or we're on the other side of, yeah, all the time. And I say to my clients, look, if somebody wasn't lying, there really wouldn't be a case here. Right. Because there's two <laughs> sides and somebody's saying something and somebody's saying, it only happened one way, though. That's the thing. Right. Like- and I had a case years and years ago. It was over a will dispute. 
And the issue was whether this person had executed uh, a new will at the last second before his death. And the will was witnessed by a nun and a man on his deathbed, right? And I remember saying to my adversary, well, come on, you think they were both lying? And he <laughs> said, yeah, they lie any differently than anybody else. And I, I feel like privilege prevents <laughs> me from telling you how this turned out. Of course. But if it is, this was a nun and a man on his deathbed. And my adversary was saying, yeah, that doesn't hold any weight with me. People lie because they think it's okay to lie. And, you know, there are, there sometimes it's because they're bad people, but sometimes it's because they think they're upholding a higher truth. Like, you know, that's what the guy really wanted was to give this money this way. And he just never got around to signing the agreement. So I'm really not doing anything bad. So I think that's what's so interesting about truth. That That's so interesting that you, you said it's a nun and a guy on his deathbed. And so of course it's true. And the other guy was like, well, no, they're lying just like anyone else. <laughs> Right. And, oh, and you know, like, like I couldn't say otherwise because, you know, maybe that's right. Maybe they both thought, you know, the guy in his bed said, you know, when I get to the, the pearly gates, I'm going to say one of the great things I did was I lied under oath to protect my friend. And maybe that's right. his view of the world. Right. And if he knows if he knows he's about to die and meet his maker, what does he say to make sure he gets in? You know, right. I mean, that's the <laughs> my knee jerk reaction was that's the kind of guy who's going to tell the truth because he's not going to want to explain why he lied to, sure. to St. Peter. Yet his view might be no, the exact opposite. That that is so interesting. Now, now I now I want to <laughs> now I'm like, oh, shoot, I want to see a book about that. And then I want to see a book about when he finally gets up there. I want to then then St. Peter knows what happens, right? He reads the book and he, okay. You know, that, that's interesting to me as somebody who wrote a book called what death taught Terrence, uh, that, and it's all about the afterlife that, 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 that makes me think, think, huh, I wonder what happened. <laughs> so tell me who is Bradley? Like what, what kind of a guy is Bradley to you? Because I, from from the jump, and I, and I say this as somebody who loved the book, and I don't know if I'm supposed to like him, but I didn't. <laughs> yeah, I'm not supposed to like him because there's not too much likable about him. But one of the things I was trying to do, you know, one of the things that I think has made me a better writer over time is when the book is almost done, I often go through it thinking through the eyes of the lesser characters, right? The, because the first draft, it, and this book is no exception, I wrote the first draft, I think thinking that it was going to be simply a Matt Brooks narration. Okay. And then Vanessa took an equal role. But later, later, I said, is what Bradley and J.R. and Erica are doing, so J.R. and Erica are the lawyers, Yeah, is that and two with how they would act in the real world. So with Bradley, and again, I know a lot of people like Bradley. He's somebody who had great success and marries, you know, the trophy wife, even though she's also brilliant in Vanessa, but someone who he thinks befits his station. And yeah. he's someone who comes to marriage later in life, which is also something 
that, you know, if you live in New York City, you're very familiar with, you know, masters of the universe types who put off everything but making money until they're 40 <laughs> and then are in a hurry to recreate the, the whole picture. And so that's who I see him as. And then everything went off the rails. But I think that he loves Vanessa, but also in the way that like he loves people, right? Like, so yeah. I think he would say, yeah, I really love Vanessa. But, but yet I think it's fair for Vanessa to say, well, I don't want to be loved that way. Like, you know, you don't really treat me as an equal. Um, you know, I'm much younger than you and, you know, you you now are really holding on to me because of financial reasons. But I think if you were in Bradley's head, he would say, well, look, when I was making all the money, I was more than happy to, for you to, you know, go along for the ride. And I was never saying, well, here's your little allowance because I'm making the money. Right. And I feel the same way now that you're making all the money. Why shouldn't I? But, you know, I think the thing that turns people off about Bradley, rightfully so, is, you know, it's a lot about appearances. And, you know, he needs the big house and the, you know, because he can't admit that things didn't turn out the way he wanted. But I find that relatable, yeah. too. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I don't want to spoil anything. He he does something that I'm, I'm sitting there thinking, did he... He, I mean, does he realize he's cutting off his nose to spite his face? Does he realize he's doing something so stupid that it's going to affect him way more than he probably thinks it is? But so, I, so, yeah, just careful not to give this. Right, I, I'm being um, careful. Yeah, I think that happens much more than people realize because you know when it happens. Nobody admits, yeah, that's what happened. But I can tell you from my my legal practice that many, many times stuff boomerang on people and they just haven't thought through the, the consequences. Um, right. And just as an aside, I remember talking to a federal prosecutor once and it was some issue where the person, I think my client was uh, somebody getting a divorce. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I thought this was really going to taint her credibility. And he said, where do you think our cases come from? <laughs> it's always somebody who's got a real axe to grind. And, and yet, one of the things when you're in, in this kind of practice is you always say to your client, yeah, I know you want to, but think about, is there any way there's blowback? Mm -hmm. And, and that it'll hurt you. And, you know, often people just don't anticipate or they're, they're blinded by, you know, what they want to achieve. And they just see it through that narrow passage that they don't realize the full ramifications of, of what they're putting in motion. Yeah. That, that was really interesting. And, and what's, what's also interesting is that there are certain things that the reader thinks, you know, until you change point of view, and sometimes you change point of view and that absolutely flips the script. And you, you do that like three or four times in this book. And I mean, as a, as a writer, I bow down to you because that is something that, no, I mean, honestly, like that's, a, that's not, that's a tough thing to do. Um, and, and well, thank do, you. And, and to do because, it well is, is hard. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate it because 
I, I also think it's a tough thing to do. And it's the thing that I struggled with the most in this book is, you know, it, it's, you know, you're trying to balance and, and yet it's not necessarily something that does balance. Right. And so that's difficult. So it's finding the way to balance it as, as a writer, how do I do this and not give away too much too quick? And because I've, I mean, we, as, as writers, you know, we start a book, we, we start a story and we get 30 pages in and we go corner. I'm stuck in a corner. I don't know how to get out. And then we, we, we spend, people don't realize half of writing is spending time trying to figure out how to get out of corners. Right. Right. I think that's right. And, you know, for me, one of the struggles is once you see the path, you know, have you, have you laid enough foundation that the reader's going to say, yes, of course, but not until it's over. Right. Like, and so, you know, readers saying, well, I saw that from a mile away is no good. Yeah. And saying, well, that was kind of a cheat because how could anyone have figured that out? Also no good. So you have to, you know, and it's very, very difficult for me because once I know, it's hard for me to say, well, will everyone know or will no one know? And so um, I, I, I just submitted my next book. And, you know, I have a group of friends who like to read the early drafts and, and I try now hard to, to spread them out because once they know, you know, <laughs> they'll say, look, I didn't, I didn't understand the ending. I'll say, okay, I need to put in more detail to get you there, but now you're no good to me because I can't ask you if it's too obvious. You can't so I gotta go, go back. To, yeah. Right. So I got to go to somebody else. And so I have to have at least enough people. So at the very end. I can say, all right, it's all riding on you. Did you see this coming or do you feel cheated? Yeah, I I will say in, in my last book, which is a Christmas book, you know, uh, to me, it ends the way that it should end. And then there are people who would say to me, wow, what a twist at the end. And then there was somebody who said to me, wow, that was really obvious. And I was like, right. and I was like, but you understand it's a Christmas novel. It's supposed to be obvious a little bit. And then, but the person who said uh, that was a twist, I go, I love you, man. Thank you. Because <laughs> I knew there were people who would think, see it as a twist. And, and, and I was fine with that. You know, it wasn't a mystery or anything. But when I, when I, when I heard them say, oh, that's a twist, I was like, all right, you know, I guess me watching the Twilight Zone all those years had some effect. And, and that's a good thing. Thank you so much for being here, Adam. Let me ask you, if people want to get in touch with you on the, online, how would they do that? Well, so two ways. I am gifted by having a, a fairly unique name. And so if you just Google me, you'll find my social media stuff. Mm -hmm. But more immediately, my email is in the acknowledgments of the book. Okay. And so if you read, flip to the page after the last page and see my email in the acknowledgments it's in the first line and send me an email and tell me what you thought and i always write back oh that's awesome i i read it on uh audio so uh i i didn't i didn't see the email because i i'm illegally blind so reading it on audio was helpful but uh you know it'd be good for me to know on audible when the book is over is that it they don't read out the acknowledgments i thought they did what they read is the uh the, the book itself Oh, no, okay. And and that's something that I believe the author can can talk to their publisher about. 
and this is a little bit inside baseball, but I believe that you can uh, talk to your publisher and say, hey, I would like the acknowledgments read. Um, but as of <laughs> as of right now, I don't believe that the acknowledge. I mean, I I would remember that. Okay, this is good to know because you know I have a a pretty dedicated fan base on Audible, and um, and I want them to be able to reach out to me. So for your listeners, Google my name, and then you know send me something on social media, and um, we can communicate that way. All right, we'll do that, uh, and um, and I'll put a link to. Do you have an author website or anything? Or I do, I you do. do. You know, adammitzner.com. Okay, and I'm on Facebook and Instagram. All right, I'll put uh, I'll put adammitzner.com in our show notes, and then they will be able to connect you that way too. All right, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Writing Well Handicapped is a podcast solely owned by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Thanks, Adam, and goodbye, everybody. <laughs>